0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars, out here we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome, this is the C86 Show, I'm David Eastall, as you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter, guitarist Vinnie Peculiar. Also, Alan Wilkes, um, who I spoke to very recently, to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Um, he's just got a new album out that is um, titled Peculiarities. Um, he's been releasing a huge amount of albums in the last 10 years. He's slightly done his career back to front, as you'll find out in this interview. Anyway, he's worked with members of the Smiths, Oasis, Aztec Camera, and The Bull um which you'll also find out about, find out about in this interesting chat anyway after several minutes of getting to know each other as you do in showbiz uh, we started waxing lyrically about David Bowie and um yes our first loves and um yes basically I told him everything I Loved about David Bowie, my first single was uh, Changes. No, it wasn't. It was Space Oddity with Changes and Velvet Goldmine on the B side. But anyway, Benny then just stormed in with his kind of take on David Bowie, and from there the conversation just gets better and better. Anyway, look, Binny, take it away.
1: I mean, I was just a kind of uh, 69 to 80 kind of obsessive with Bowie. I didn't really, I didn't really like Let's Dance. As much as a lot of people, a lot of my friends, and um, well, I prefer Tin Machine to Let's dance. I thought just because it was ambitious and out there. Yes. But I, didn't re- I mean, I had the album. Like, I, he got a bit of a hard time in the '80s, Barry, press-wise, uh, and we always loved to do that because he was just—he was like the Beatles of the '70s with all the changes and the evolution and the styles and the bowing and you know some of the choice of musicians, were just, just perfect for his kind
0: of maverick. Unbelievable, unbelievable uh, musicians. So what was your moment, the formative moment that you, you know, changed your life? Uh,
1: musically? Yeah. In, in, well, I suppose, uh, uh, when I was really young, I loved Paul Simon. Simon and Garfunkel probably was my first thing because I'd learned to play guitar when I was like 11 or 12. And uh, I grew up in quite a, a um, a religious household. My father was a uh, church organist. Uh, mom runs. Mom did the choir. Uh, my granddad was a, like a radical preacher, Methodist, sort of "thou shalt not drink" kind of. Right. Chant. So I grew up with all that, and I. Um, so music for me was all, was often about performing at church and performing hymns. Obviously, I had hymns every week from uh, age. Whenever uh, to 14, and my dad said, When I was 14, you, you still want to go, you don't have to know If you don't want to, I said, No, <laughs> but I mean, now, that's not to say that uh, that kind of music hasn't had an influence. But In terms of getting excited about music, it was probably um, I got the Bridge Over Trouble Watch album in 1970 from Kay's catalogue, my mom got it for me, and that was pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, and you had all
1: the T Rex singles uh, that were also. You know and the whole whole
0: top of the pops thing. Because
1: I've spoken to I in a Eureka moment I think with with Bowie doing Starman because it just seemed that all the all the sort of music was it wasn't just about song, it was about where does he come from? you know? How can you look and behave like that? And it was yes. just uh, it, it sort of opened up something. And I think in lots of kids. Yeah, I mean,
0: it was it was something about that. It was definitely quite a moment, and did you, I mean, because I spoke to a few American musicians who came from Christian religious backgrounds, and they, you know, they couldn't do music at all, you know, rock and roll, anything like I mean, they were quite, probably extreme, they had to have prayer meetings, they had to see people to say, look, you know, they want to, they want to listen to this record, is it the work of the devil? I mean, in the UK, <laughs> I know it's a bit extreme, but it was That's true. for me, I, It wasn't oppressive in that sense, for me, they
1: didn't, my dad didn't approve of any rock and roll or anything like that, but uh uh you know, I still got an electric guitar and annoyed the hell out of me.
0: Right. So they yeah, they body America's probably they
1: weren't it wasn't quite like a, a controlling evangelical
0: Right, but yes. It
1: was much more laid back than that. But that's the world they were very involved with, you know. Um I don't, you know, and he my dad sort of just offered me a way out and I took it.
0: Yes. Was and it was, was, was it was it a generally supportive family?
1: Oh uh, yeah, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. yeah yes. A, so you've
0: only really got one to compare it to, probably. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I did see. I did hear one of your songs that you 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 did recently, which was quite grim. Just jumping, uh-huh. the suicidal dad. Oh yeah, that suicidal dad was a, a song that I did
1: number of years ago now, uh, probably 2001, 2002, uh, when it was recorded. But that came out of an experience in the Manchester support group for the child support agency, where there was a suicide. That's where that came from.
0: Oh, crikey. Okay. Uh, uh,
1: One of the lads there killed himself. So that just completely resonated with me. And then five years later, uh, you know, the lyric uh, go, talks about um, uh, the CSA just briefly in it as well, which yeah. is a massive governmental cock-up, both for uh, absent parents and for parents, It was just a way of, you know, control and contain and uh, taking money off people, and assessing people for ridiculous amounts of money that they didn't have, you know, to uh, pay in maintenance. You know, uh, it's,
0: um, it's a long time ago. Yeah, absolutely So then there's the 70s, because you had the Bowie thing But, you know, when you really think about it At that time, the 60s, obviously it just happened And, you know, we had the Beatles, Stones It was kind of quite a macho culture as well, wasn't it? And then that party had finished The 70s came along, and you had the glam So I would imagine those people must have looked at Bowie And, you know, T-Rex At that stage and thought God, this is just hideous really you know they, they couldn't have been that impressed with them and also I spoke to quite a lot of the people who were part of that 60 scene and, and said well what happened to you in the 70s because frankly you weren't there and they said we were quite tired we were knackered and several people died or you know it, it like any party that you stay at for too long you often realize you should have left before it gets kind of really yeah, messy. So Bowie must have become, you know, they must have looked at Bowie and thought, well, this isn't the Jefferson Airplane, this isn't Hendrix, the Doors, you know, he must have looked a bit cheap, a bit like, you know, Bross <laughs> or something, <laughs> I don't know. But then, but then you had the sort of the birth of kind of the Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and, you know, denim jeans. So where were you fitting in with that sort of scene? Uh,
1: well, the, uh, I suppose I got into Heavy Rock briefly, but once Punk came around, I abandoned all that, probably in the name of musical fashion, like if a lot of people did. I read The Enemy*. That was pretty much my source material to, that jumped me off into reading other books. So if Robert Smith had read The Outsider by Albert Camus, I had to read it, kind of thing. So I, The Enemy* actually served as a sort of platform for uh, for inspiration. And uh, with, uh, So yeah, I read a lot of The NME. Um, and ended up going to various, uh, you know, sort of punky gigs, Birmingham Barbarellas the club. I was in Birmingham then, uh, I was working as a nurse, so I was starting to play small punky gigs in hospitals for right. uh, people with learning disabilities,
0: and people with long-term psychiatric problems. Blimey, so that's quite. Cool. They're always interesting gigs. Yeah, absolutely. So when did you start, when did the musical kind of career start to sort of develop a bit more then, during the uh, 80s? Only really when
1: I moved to Liverpool in, in the uh, mid-80s. Before that, I had a couple of, uh, I was in a couple of bands, but I was also uh, a young parent and uh, trying to keep a family to, family together. And uh, so I was in a couple of arty bands that did occasional gigs, but we didn't really have the wherewithal to... Um, to do that much in my early 20s although i was writing a lot of lyrics i thought i was a bit of a poet in those days but not really sure whether i was <laughs> so i've done i've actually done that you know when you kind of go back and look at this load of stuff you thought was great and then you re re-read it like 30 years time and you think well maybe i wasn't the new ted after all
0: <laughs> well, it's probably a good thing. I mean, he, his, his kind of track record with relationships wasn't great. Was <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but um, but yeah, then. Cooper, I, I like John
1: Cooper's
0: Yes. Was. And during that period, because a lot of bands that I've interviewed, especially the early 80s, you know Thatcher got in 79 you know we'd had the sort of punk that post-punk period indie pop started to really sort of develop you know personally you know the Smiths in 83 you know was just a a big moment and then you know you'd had that Liverpool sound that had come out of Eric's and the band called Death School and and big in Japan with all that bunch like Bill um, Drummond and and sort of Holly Johnson were you you know sort of looking at music as a as a sort of a potential career path or were you always quite Kind of thinking,
1: I was, I, was a, I was a student nurse in the early 80s, so I, yeah, I mean, I have vivid memories of uh getting the bus to work every day with a brand new Sony Walkman listening to Smith's record. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I was a Smith's obsessive for sure, uh, in the early days, uh, in the, in the early 80s, yeah, uh, and the guitar style and just the whole more the whole lyricism. I still think Morrissey. In spite of his his current sort of oddness, is is a wonderful, wonderful lyricist, and well, he has that. a wonderful way of taking things to the edge. And uh, they're great
0: those early Smith records. Well, I like all the albums. I like Full of Hollow especially. You know, yes. which is Peel Sessions and that stuff. Well, that was probably the first album that I got from them, and I preferred it because the first album didn't do anything for me at all, and I still think it sounds a bit cheap.
1: Yeah, it sounds like, uh, I suppose it's the way it's re- been recorded quickly and it sounds a little demo-ish and a uh, little undynamic.
0: It's very, wow. I find it flat, whereas Hat Full of Hollow was the one that was there. But the, that been the gloom though,
1: some of those songs, you know, the, the dream is gone but the baby is real, that one's that one, uh, the river, the colour of... Blood. Uh, Merce, yeah, Merce the Baby's Head, that one? Yes. It's the darkest of things. I know, the Moore's uh, Murder. I, 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 I
0: listened to I don't remember. I can't remember. Yes. So then, as the 80s progressed, because mm-hmm. as I mentioned, my theory here, 87, 83 to 87, indie pop was really ruling the airwaves. Well, it was on the indie charts. Obviously, mm-hmm. we had the Bundu Boys and LL L. J. Because anything that John Peel played, I'd sort of try to like and like own I mean, a copy then 87 came along and you had sort of the, the breakup of the smiths and the party felt again like it was kind of over and then you know ecstasy came and then so everyone wanted to sound a bit like the happy mondays and stone roses and primal Scream. so how were you developing at that stage
1: uh well i was working in social care giving out bottles of water at cream <laughs> <laughs> i had a sense of social responsibility in those days yeah no i was working in liverpool and uh one of the things in a team that included social workers and nurses, and I kind of, um, we ended up rotating in and out of cream because people were uh, uh, dying basically of ecstasy and nobody really knew how to manage it. And I think the actual strengths were so variable. Uh, I know that makes, you know, I, I, I'm sure a lot of rock and roll interviews sort of glorify and. Um, talk very eloquently about the joys of ecstasy but you know uh for me it wasn't that i i didn't like the music either particularly i think it's uh it's just repetitive and, um i mean it's probably great if you're taking much of drugs which they say is you know every music era has its drug uh, yes. connections but um yeah, so uh, that's what I was doing in, in the late 80s. I was also writing songs and uh, started, uh, I was in Liverpool then, and I started a couple of bands that uh, did a load and load of recording without really releasing anything. Because I think in those days, people were chasing the big record deal. So we were always down in London meeting people from various publishing companies and record, you know, big record labels and we're almost there, or you know, it wasn't quite working. Or... So well, I, I've still got a load of stuff, I suppose I could put out at some point. Yeah. But uh, I, I hadn't really done that. Um, but from, from sort of the, the early nineties, I, I, some of the stuff I've been recording then and earlier, just uh, made it onto the first Philly really album and then just started putting stuff
0: out there. Did you feel that um, when, did you get, when did you get your when did you get your name? Where did I get it? Um, no, when did it happen?
1: Probably in about 1991, 92. No, maybe three, four. Oh, I can't remember. It must be probably 90, maybe 95, something like that. I started doing solo gigs, and it was a name I could use for band gigs and solo gigs. But it wasn't a plan to um, <coughs> excuse me. It wasn't a plan to be called Vinnie though and my Joyce from the Smiths made sure he uh, made his views very clear because he didn't want to call me Alan Wilkes he wanted to call me he wanted to be eccentric singer he said, yeah I can't call you that <laughs> and I said am I all right then and uh, we kind of slowly yeah uh, people called me started to call me Vinny, and that was probably Smiths Lads are in the band 2004 to, well, Andy, Andy left kind of a couple of years later and then Mike stayed to so about
0: 2009.
1: Yes. Me and uh, Mike still a great friend of mine, even though we do say we're great friends and still seeing each other and chatting on the phone regularly because we
0: never made any money in a band. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably
1: true because, you
0: know, uh, he's had the opposite experience, obviously, as you know. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, he's been in, yeah. Because I you, suppose, do people get slightly mixed up with you, Vinnie Peculiar, Vinnie Riley? Do they go, oh, right. I yes, I did. I once
1: have a... Uh, a whole interview. No, not a whole interview. A, <laughs> a four-star Independent review. you think the Independent would know better. I can't remember the journalist. But it was, it was, it was raving on about this album I did. And uh, just, you know... Re- dropped the Jurati column in at the end and, you know, it, it sort of took, took away all my uh, quote potential. <laughs> 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 it was like, uh, I got in touch with, I think it was Gavin Martin. It might, it might have been Gavin Martin. In the uh, No, it wasn't Gavin. It was, oh,
0: God, I can't think who it was. My God, that must have, that. it did that once happen to me actually on an interview because I was wanting to get a member of the fire station, no fire engines from Scotland. No, uh, I remember the fire engines. Yeah, well I and I thought, oh, I found this guy, Davy Henderson. And mm-hmm. I I I got a hold of I said, Do you want to do an interview? He said, Yeah, that's great. I thought brilliant, you know. And I thought, strange, he's not Scottish, but anyway, it doesn't matter, you know. And then it turned and halfway through this moment, I'll just tell you, it was like, Oh god, it's David Henderson. And he's like, No, I wasn't I wasn't in the fire engines. It's like because his whole career he was in a band called Disco Duck or something like that with the guy who went on to form Food. No, he didn't form, he was part of Food Records and signed um Blur. And this guy went on his career, you know, indie pand went on, became part of that whole world of EMAP and magazine rock magazines works for Cherry Red Records now. And it's like oh, well, I'm so Cherry Red, I might know <laughs> David Henderson. And um so anyway, he's he he was in a band which was not the fire engine. I just remember having that. I went, oh my god, I suddenly, right, yeah, okay, so let's... Everything you've prepared, you suddenly have to kind of almost outlive into another world. It was like, I think you realise I've made a mistake, but let's pretend that's fine. <laughs> 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 so luckily I didn't start with, tell me about the Durity column, that would mean the crisis. So look, how did you then, because cause with, you know, the people you've worked I, with... I supported the Durity column on a little tour once, so really,
1: really nice.
0: Yes, I have to say I saw a picture of uh, Vinnie recently. He does look very thin, doesn't he, and old. I think well, from what I'm just talking to
1: people, he's always been a bit fragile. I suppose you know, uh, he does look a little fragile, but he's quite resilient in his
0: own way, apparently. Well, yes, well you get to that age, don't you? So when <coughs> did you? Was it? So was the '90s then? Trying to get an idea. So the '90s came along. We had we had grunge. Then we had Britpop. We had shoegazing. So. All the, all the way through your musical career have you always stuck with a you know like I was talking to Amelia Fletcher she's you know she was in Tallulah Gosh, she's in Heavenly, she's been in a million bands but she's always had a day job at the UEA actually being True. a lecturer so did you always have that same pretty much <clears throat> I'm not giving my day job up because frankly the the fun yeah. bit doesn't make any money yeah
1: exactly and uh, I mean the number of phone calls I've taken from friends working in studios saying, "Oh, this is it. You know, V2 uh, are going to sign us. They're coming up on Monday. They absolutely love it. You should give up your job now.
0: Come on, come on, come on." <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> yeah And I'm thinking, you know what? I've, I did this, I did that years ago in the '80s. I gave up a, a job uh, briefly for, for about a year, and then I got my old job back in the hospital. And uh, yeah, so I never, I never quite did. What I did do in about 2000 is start working part-time. So that allowed me uh, time to do shows and hang on to a bit of sanity. Well, yes. it. so it's What I was doing then, I was either nursing, you know, face-to-face, contacting the community, psychiatry, and learning, disability. Uh, and then I went on to do uh, other little other, uh, NHS jobs. Uh, I ended up uh, as a mental health commissioner, which... Uh, sounds very grand, but uh, isn't really. It's, it ended up in, you know, spreadsheet held, and budgets Thanks. and, uh, you know, liaison with local authorities and panels and funding. And it ended up quite remote from, from people, and that, that isn't as much fun, to be fair.
0: No, so, no. I, I was
1: bad. I, I, I got out early,
0: you know, I got out when I was 50. Or... It's very tricky. You, you, you have to sort of go to those workshops, don't you, about how to manage budgets.
1: Oh God, yeah, it it wasn't my natural, it wasn't my
0: natural. So have you always, with your musical career, have you always been the front man? Have you always wanted to be the front person?
1: Uh, Well, I really want, I quite like just the idea of being a guitar player. I I really love guitars, you know. I uh, I always seem to be buying a new guitar or selling an old one, you know. uh, But um, yeah, so I, I mean, I just seem to end up in bands where I was sort of, Oh, you can do it. I can write. He's he's like he's always got his head in a book. You can do that, can't you? Yes. You can write the words. Can you do that, can't you? Yeah. Okay. Then, then you. I, I just ended up. Uh, um, I think once you start writing songs, you can, you can get on quite a roll. You know, I could. Uh, even now, I I, uh, I write fairly quickly. I get the last three or four records I've done. I've, I've had uh, a concept in my head and. You know, I can kind of uh, write twenty songs in in a, in a month if I put my head to it, and, uh, yes. demo so, them and get the band in, rehearse them, make a
0: record. sort of. So, when you know, with David Bowie, you know, I, I sort of was looking at his career, you know, a while back, and thought, God, he's done an album a year during the seventies, and produced others, and relocated, had lots of relationships. Your O years were quite phenomenal weren't they did it did something click during 2001 when you brought out iron in the soul
1: uh, yeah I mean um, I suppose what click was I finally thought I really you know I, I think I'd spent up until that point thinking I was like Brom Scrooge's answer to David Bowie. why doesn't somebody discover me <laughs> and then I think you finally realised you have to do more than that you can't just you can't live in your own bubble mm. You know what i mean I, and i'm very i'm quite an intimate person so i'm quite good on my own and um yeah i just i just kind of expected something that I, I, that I wasn't really connecting or working towards So i wasn't going and hanging out with the right people i'm not really a hanger out there of no. you know I'm, I'm, i i'm you know i go and see the gig but then i i do i i don't, don't want to go to a nightclub then take loads of drugs or... I just, I've just never been that sort of person. I'm not much of a natural fit with, uh, with that side of rock and roll. The, bit, the fit I'm, I, I enjoy is actually the performance and thinking about it and thinking about the ideas behind what the music is. But I'm, you know, I'm never really... Uh, I'm not much of a liquor. Yes. And who are Hug records <laughs>
0: like that? That sounds that a bit... A bit of a uh, selfish way of looking at things, but... Well, oh, yeah. it is it, it, a good one. And Hug Records, was this one that you developed or was this kind of thing? Yeah, that was uh, a
1: Space's record label in Liverpool, Space, right. the band. I recorded uh, uh, in the same building as Space. Yes. Quite a lot. And uh, with a producer called Rob Ferrier. And uh, we we we, uh, we struck up a really good relationship, and uh, i think he did three or four albums with me, rob so yeah. he finally realized there's no money in the music industry <laughs> and that's a proper job which uh, of course he constantly regrets leaving, but uh, he's now in a situation where he can't come back it's 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 a, it's a tough it's a tough game, i think uh, you know the economic realities of the music industry even I mean, now with COVID and everything else, people are just—I mean—the number of people that are going to suffer. You know, got tech crews, you know, stage hands, sound engineers, studios. Actually, studios—I was in the studio the last three days, and uh, studios are allowed to open. So we—I'm finishing off another album for next year. So uh, um, that was that was a really good experience, but. Um, yeah, most people you know, you know, just giving musicians, you know, a number of my friends uh, gig more than me uh, in various bands, just had no income, so it's, it's pretty tough.
0: Yes, I know, I, I sort of realised I haven't spoken to quite a lot of people, especially who've tried to keep music going, they've really had to do that one moment where they do Europe, you know, for 30, 30 gigs in 30 days because of the economics, but, you know, doing Germany and well, definitely Germany, you know, is is kind of economically essential for them to keep, you know, surviving, and um, oh, that's taken away. and that's also it's not just gigs; it's the merch as well. So, the, yeah, if the, you
1: good. normally press up two thousand CDs on your first go, uh, or even a thousand, whatever you normally do, you, you you can usually get. You know, the aim is to get rid of them, but now, of course, there's no way to get rid of them, and it, get, selling at gigs is really important to musicians.
0: Yeah, and, and that T-shirt. So when so when did you start? You know, you know, how did you manage to work with so many amazing other musicians?
1: Um, well, I just I just started doing gigs on my own in Manchester, and um, we uh, had a club night called the Kitchen Sink Disco. Booked Andy Rourke, he came. Yeah, are you talking about how did I end up with the Smiths in my band? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. He, well, he came and. Uh, Liked it, brought Mike along the next time and I performed and then went to Mike's and rehearsed. And it, it didn't seem, I mean it, millions of people kept banging on to me how, but I, you know, we just kind of got along as musicians. They are, they, regardless of where, who they've been with, they're, they're good players and, uh, and uh, it was the same for me. You know, I just did what I usually do, send them my demos and we came to rehearsal and, and, um, put our ideas into the pot and that was it. Yeah. We made an album with Mike, which was great. Made a single with uh, Andy and Mike in, um, recorded in Sweden. Because so we toured with Soundtrack of Our Lives, who were a great live band from Sweden with a big Sony record, four album deal. So we did a few shows with them and they were they were great. Um, yes. Uh, so that was, a, that was a good period. Before that, I, I went with Bill Drummond, did I tell you that? No. Oh, Drummond connection is the funny one, really. Well, no, not funny. But um, I got this gig. I was an artist in residence at the Cathedral Arts Festival in Belfast, which ran for two weeks. Which is a, a really nice little gig. Basically, he flew me to Belfast, and I lived in a flat for two weeks and compared all the shows. And uh, uh, well, well, I was comparing and playing gigs every night. And during the day, you know, there was a lot of different art events that I was involved in. And Bill was there as well. So I was artist in residence musical and he was artist in residence visual. And so we did stuff together. And he had had this project called The Soup Line, which you may come across. um, He draws an imaginary line on a map, asks people to get in touch with him. And then he turns up at their house. This was his project at the time, turning up at people's houses and making them soup. (laughs) They're invariably kind of... uh, middle-class arty houses with interested people. Bill, we can get Bill Drummond round, he's gonna make us some soup. No, oh, Yes, he is. Anyway, Bill, Bill then would turn up and do the speech.
0: Oh, Tim, go away. Um, oh, you've gone a bit quiet. Hello?
1: Uh, yeah. oh. Hello, Alan. I'm in the middle of... <laughs> I'm in the middle of an interview too. Can I just c- push end? I'll talk to you later. Have you got your trousers on? I've got my trousers on. Okay, right, see you later.
0: Cool. Keep your uh, trousers God. on. I thought <laughs> I... Um,
1: Yeah, anyway, Bill Drummond was... Um, uh, he was great. I, so I, I spent a couple of weeks in a flat with him. We lived in the same flat. and. Uh, the, the thing that struck me most about Bill was he was so sincere. You know, I, everyone has him down as an arts prankster, but he's actually a very sincere uh, artist with some very determined, a uh, very determined mode of operandi.
0: Yes, blimey.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. So uh, these soup gigs, I, he did the talk, tell everyone why he'd come to make soup. They couldn't believe it. He just his answer was, well, it's just a nice thing to do. And we were like pressing for more artistic reasons that he couldn't give them. And then he handed over to me and I played, you know, five, six, however many songs I played, I can't remember. And then peddled my wares and uh, sold CDs. Uh, and uh, that was it.
0: Well, oh, that's,
1: that's an amazing... Time was a time. I did probably do like 15, 20 gigs with Bill like that. Yeah. Got up to boring, though, eating the soup. <laughs> after a while, after a while, you, know, you got any bread and butter? I don't know. Really I'll just eat the bread. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same, it's the, same, the same meal. He's got this old, probably Presbyterian church recipe for vegetable soup that he, that
0: he was applying at the time. So, just to get that right, he would knock on someone's door, tell them this problem. knock on the door. Basically, he put flyers out in libraries.
1: To say if you live on this line, this is the soup line. It's a line between Belfast and Nottingham, which he drew on a map. Uh, I'm not sure why Nottingham. I'm not sure why Belfast. But anyway, drew a line on the map, and if you all the places that cropped up on that map, I think what he must have done is uh, posted off some flyers to various libraries. Right on the on the on the soup line, or, or put some kind of, done some kind of email, group, group email, because I think by then he would have had 2004, you'd be, you'd be, uh, have a mailing list.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then you just turned up. They, so they obviously were aware that you were turning up. Yeah, no,
1: make... they, were, they had assembled like 20 people who were interested in having soup made for them by bill. So how I long mean, did that- I think People like to talk to him about, you know, the care.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely, and other,
1: and other projects. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I tried to get him to do What Time Is Love acoustically with me, at pretty much every gig. Can <laughs> we do it now? No. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've rung him a few times and said things like, "Do uh, you? What about? Uh, uh, can you just be executive producer? You don't have to do anything. I'll put your name on the uh, album sleeve. It'll look great." And he, he spent twenty minutes telling me why it would look great, and then. 20 minutes telling me why he couldn't do it. I knew he couldn't do it anyway. (laughs) Because he's just, he's got too many rules. I mean, when I met him, I I said, you know, I gave him a couple of CDs. He said, oh, I can listen to them. It's uh, This year I'm listening to uh, P's and B's. And P, I can put you in peculiar. What do you mean? He said, that's it. It doesn't begin with a P or a B in 2004. I'm on P's and B's. I can't listen to it. I said, "Why not?" I said, "I just, I can't. It's the rules." <laughs> it's, so for every year from this is about Bill's psyche about creating his own sort of um, rules. It's, it's quite interesting. It's like, I mean, the project after that was called the Seventeen. I don't know whether you've come across that. he got seventeen people together in a room, recorded them, and then and then deleted them. Yeah. By, they, they joined the Seventeen, which is. I think it was the 17 because it's a magical age. You know, you're not quite an adult and you're not quite a teenager. No. But uh, yeah, so they were interesting times. I did some 17s as well, but I don't want to bore you with too much Bill Drummond stuff.
0: No, but I kind of, yeah. It was interesting because Alice Cooper did, um was it 18? <clears throat> 18. I'm not quite a man. I'm not quite a boy. Yes, yeah. I it was one know. of those. So anyway, Bill went for 17 instead. So Yeah, yeah. his book was called The 17. Yeah, I do love that thing about having you know. I couldn't do it myself, but having rules is is quite extraordinary, really. You know, sort of. It's um, not unlike the Dice Man, Adam. Have you ever read the Dice Man? No, but I have sort of come across the synopsis of it and sort of the concept of it, where you,
1: it's everything's out of your control. It's controlled by something else
0: when i realized what the, what it was about i thought well, that, that's fine i don't need to read it so look coming then to the new album god sorry you've got yeah but you've got such an interest in you know your, your cv and your and the, the work you've done it's kind of fascinating at the same time isn't it with the because because it was kind of, it's kind of unusual mostly people do the stuff when they're between the ages of 18 to 25 yeah, reverse. You've done it in the reverse. And as as I sort of found with most of these bands, especially from the 80s, you know, they had the unemployment period, Job Seekers Alliance, which gave them that kind of one year of being almost given a grant. So they would form a band, do the single, give it to John Peel, John Peel would give them a session, they would do the album, Things Going Well, do the tour around all these art centers and or club nights around Brit- Britain, second album comes, they're really fed up with each other. They split up basically, doesn't it? You know, that's that's the kind of general thing. because, you know, the rock and roll world has been really fantastic, but they've made no money. They hate each other and they don't really care about the second or third album anymore. And that's yeah, kind of like the life it,
1: it's just, it's just a rehash of the first
0: two, but not as good. It's not, and and there's no kind of game plan, which kind of gave me such an amazing like god how did people like David Bowie do it even you know people like you too obviously you know started at that point but then kept going and and managed to pass but then a lot of the people that I've interviewed lately have sort of come back into music or have have sort of chilled out a bit and then sort of started releasing albums so you've completely done it the other way and and playing with all these people that you must have seen in the 80s must have felt a
1: little bit yeah, strange. It did feel a bit strange sometimes with the Smiths. Um, well, with Bonehead as well. We, 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 I had a band with Bonehead a few years ago called Parlor Flames, and um, that 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 was kind of strange too because it's it's always a double-edged sword when well-known people um, join your band because as far as you're all concerned, you're all kind of mates together. You know, I mean, um, you kind of. I mean, even now, you know, Bone rang me. Uh, a few weeks ago, I said, What are you up to? And I said, oh, I've got this uh gig, it's a local gig, but it's a good one and it's I think it's gonna sell out. He said, Oh yeah, I'm at the Hollywood Bowl with Liam. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's like, Oh right, okay, well, you're there, I'm here. That's good, that's good. You know, and um so but that was just like a normal conversation about two mates talking about what they're doing. Yes. I, I actually did feel <laughs> like just but I don't think he did, you know, he's just like talking quite happily about, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I think we're all in with Mike and Andy and everyone, it was all, everyone was kind of in as an equal. But then you get in the real world and say, I mean, I did, I always remember doing, um, in Manchester, they have a Smiths tour, uh, Smiths and Morrissey tour, and I was at Salford Lads Club, and at the end of the tour, they had, I know, two or three coaches of uh, fans, Smiths fans, turn up at the Lads Club, and they're all sat down in in um, in the gym there. And I basically lead lead the gig, and uh, Andy and I are playing on acoustic guitars, Smiths songs. Obviously, I'm doing all the vocals. We're doing three Vinnie Peculiar songs and three Smiths songs. It goes down an absolute storm. It's it's wonderful. And, yes. Uh, and uh, have a, have a great time, and then. Uh, 250 people surged th- forward past me <laughs> to have the picture taken with the real reason they're there so it was like I was like yeah, it, 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 there was a little bit of that going on <laughs> oh yeah I kind of get it now it's not nothing it doesn't matter how good my songs are it's not for a certain hardcore connected yes you know what I mean I mean I did Big Bounce we did I remember Big Man Strikes again and a few others I really would playing those great song yeah
0: and
1: of course craig joined the band as well so i had craig gannon was in the band for quite
0: a while yeah because i did an interview with craig kind of a few months ago which was quite an amazing story because he's such a nice
1: stories isn't he yeah
0: he's such a nice guy but his experience with the Smiths sounded bloody like something from the godfather when you said you know it's yeah. almost like you said you know it's not personal as they just the fans search past you to find you know the other members of the band. you know oh
1: did that happen to craig as well yeah well well, i
0: suppose, well, well, I suppose he, they had a you know a, the Smiths at that point were pretty alive weren't they and and it was happening but it wasn't happening so to speak and so they kind of ended up yeah he didn't have a great experience with them did he uh
1: no i think i mean he had a great relationship with Mike, I think, though, it's
0: Mike got
1: him in the Yeah. Mike. And I think so, so I can't, you know, I can't play like Yes. But both but the guitars at once and I so I do the recording and then Craig came in.
0: And with your own <laughs> and with your own guitar playing, did that change over the decades as well when you were both listening to new different music and also and albums plus playing with all these different members of other bands
1: yeah my guitar playing has uh, changed a lot and um, i'm, still, I'm still, still one that will play a certain style for a certain kind of tune so i've got on this new album which is much more rock based um, you know i wig out you know like i used to try and do when i was 15.
0: Yes. Yeah,
1: no, I, I do. I have my Richie Blackmore moments and all that comes. Kind of, and I, I, I had a, an antipathy towards that style for a long time, based on, you know, that was the dinosaur age, and then punk came along, and then just when the, Johnny Marr came along, that was quite a revelation because uh, I love the way he plays. I love the, the sort of janglishness of of his. Of his uh, parts, are kind of uh, they're big, but they're spacey, and, and, yeah, rather than just you, you know your full-on thin lizzy type. Yes,
0: guitar. Well, well, I mean, it, I, I think there's a space for it all. You know, it just depends on the songs really. Yeah, well, there actually one band that that had that space was the uh, the Chameleons. They had a very stadium-based sound. They weren't like this little geek, you know, like indie band who wanted to play in front there of. lot of the guitars,
1: didn't they, going on? They, they did. had an expert
0: starter, Johnny Maron in some ways. Like yeah. So with your new release, this is kind of unreleased material that you've been getting through the archives. When did you start putting this together?
1: The, the peculiarities, right? Yes. Um, well, it just seemed like a time that, to do it because I wasn't doing any gigs. Uh, I only did put it together this year. And uh, I actually left out a lot of stuff from the 90s, which I'm going to do as a separate project. Um, but I had you know alternative versions of 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 stuff, particularly um the parlor flames songs that we ended up putting out. I think me and Bone spent too long producing them so I think there, there was too much sheen on them, so right. I had some earlier mixes, which I thought sounded better. I spoke to him and its fine, so we just well, I just put them out in my my certain package. yes you so there's some a couple the Parlour Flames ones and it's just you know whenever you're recording there's always one that doesn't quite fit on with an album so um so that's that, that's how that peculiarities
0: just just came out. Basically so, this is this is what we've all done this year isn't it? Go, go I, through I, the I, end.
1: I, I need a bit more time to think well
0: I haven't got any gigs
1: so you know you, I've been writing songs I mean I wrote down, I wrote this new album in lockdown, it's coming out next year, so...
0: Is this the one that's titled Artists Only?
1: Yes, it's a, you're going to tell me you know it's a talking headstone, song, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah! But, uh, it fits the, the kind of brief, um, so because of the concept album kind of scenario I've done for the last two or three albums, I, I, I did a concept album set in the <laughs> psychiatric hospital which I didn't expect to do, when I left the NHS, called Silver Meadows. Then I moved back from the north to the Midlands and wrote a Worcestershire concept album called Return of the Native. And then I wrote an angry album called uh, While You Still Can, that was fueled a little bit by uh, by political craziness, uh, Brexit. And then this new album, I've gone back to more familiar territory, which is like a, a, an album about art. Yeah. So I've got David Me, Francis Bacon, um, who else have I got, Jackson Pollock, uh, oh, and I've got other art related um, lyrics as well, I've got one called, one called Art School as well, about art school music, which sounds like art rock basically. Um, like death and, school? yeah yeah it, yeah there's a sort of uh, scratchy
0: sort of for yes but well, there were several there were several bands I've, I've done there was a band called the fabulous poodles and then there's deaf school and they they were both kind of influential and apparently they were brilliant live but when you hear the records you think yeah i can see why you didn't sell many it's kind of like you wouldn't sit down and listen to it at home God, that's a yeah. terrible thing to say isn't it
1: <laughs> yeah and uh, and um sometimes artists are so arsy they don't really want to be produced, that sometimes happens. Yes.
0: So when you're previously...
1: You've yeah, you got lots of energy. I mean, if, if the pistols yeah. didn't work with, you know, the right producers, they wouldn't have sounded. No, you know, they, say, could, they could have been all hype and no sound, but you know, when you heard it, you thought, oh yeah, it's massive, it's huge
0: that a good producer but look on your previous album you did one like Diane Abbott who obviously was a very interesting character in the in the Labour Party I mean what how did that song came about
1: <clears throat> well it's not really big big picking on Diane Abbott to be fair uh, I, I quite like Diane Abbott but the the whole I mean there's a certain vanity of political culture now which is very different than how it used to be so I think there's a, a massive um, Almost uh, an over an over important sense of uh, drama around image and uh, and this constant need to share and feed your social media platforms and, and your your PR is almost more important than your than your um, than your policy. So and uh, uh, so that that's it's a song about the, the vanity of politics because I think sometimes. Um, you know, Trump is you know just classic example of you know, his vanity is beyond anything he stands for. And I think I think that 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 happens to a larger to a greater degree in in, um, in, in British politics too.
0: Yeah, yeah. holding
1: back from that constant need to self-aggrandize when when really you know uh, all we end up with is just polarisation between these opposing forces. This kind of, you know, stand, stand away from the image and, and, and address the... <laughs> am I disappearing
0: down that hole? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, was just, I was just thinking, you know, obviously um, people are listening to this in the future, but, you know, like over the last week where we had all these people who brought together and made Brexit kind of, happened have all kind of jump shipped almost a month before the big day when it's like that's it it's all over and you're thinking it's a bit like and you're obviously being in the work world where someone has a bad idea but they're in a managerial position you think I don't want to be the person who picks that up but then you end up having to pick it up and they kind of leave and get a better job and you're thinking God oh, the, the, what they've left us is an absolute mess you know and it feels a bit like that at this moment you know it's like you get the message over Make sure the message is clear. You know, we'll get this. You know, as long as it kind of hits the headlines in the papers, you know, don't worry about the details. There's, you know, the last election, Brexit. You know, and suddenly he's thinking, wow All these brilliant brains have just buggered off. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's I think
1: mean, that song's really about how it looks, not about how it really is. And yes. What seems to be happening, rather than what's happening. It's almost if you've got, if you can spin it hard enough, people will believe it.
0: Well, absolutely. It's a really
1: disturbing thing when you think about it. We used to expect, uh, you know, some kind of rational, evidence based politics where, and people used to meet in the middle a little bit, but now it's just so polarized. um, I think that's what that album's about. I got a track on there called Pop Music for Ugly People, which um, was a very famous quote show business for ugly, ugly people um, which was uh, I can't remember who quoted it but it was somebody's uh, assessment of what politicians are <laughs> so that's what they're involved in it's just, it's just called music for ugly people well,
0: no, no, no. anyway we all, we all sort of just, just before we move on to the new album but I do think this um, you must get in Princess Nut Nut I think that's the classic one for, for any future song, Princess Nut Nut, which is kind of the thing that broke the back of this latest kind of genius who got kicked out, kicked out of number 10 with his box of stationery. Mm-hmm. Did you know about that, what he was writing about Boris's girlfriend? No. And he was writing about,
1: uh, I know he slandered Boris's partner. Yeah, he, he referred I, to... A- I haven't read what he actually wrote.
0: Well, I think he referred to it as Prin- Princess Nutnut was his kind of <laughs> reference. So I think when Boris saw this, it was like literally like, "That's, That's a great title. title!" Brilliant title, Princess Nutnut. You know, Nutnut, <laughs> and that was the architect of Brexit out the door. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's more the game than politics. It's kind of it's like being in the primary school playground of calling each other names, isn't it? It's got down to that level, you know, Princess Nutnut. <laughs> I
1: can just picture, picture Boris's face when you've discovered
0: it Yes, it's like, right, that's yeah, it they're, they're way more cartoon-like than
1: they ever were they?
0: Yeah. Yes, I know So look, hoping that next year is, is slightly different and possibly better I mean, with the new album coming out you've got a, a more of a solid band well, since I got back to Worcester, uh, I've been back here
1: four years now, so yeah, I've met some musicians that I'm happy with, and uh, uh, with this new album, um, the drummer is playing on about six or seven of the tracks. I, to be fair, I, I think I'm playing most of the other stuff but live. We've just recorded a live album. Did I mention that as well? No. Called Loose, that's out. That's just come out. That was recorded live in the studio in September. Uh, socially distanced and all that kind of thing. But um, so that's out now as well. Uh, that's live versions of uh, the more noisier uh, bits of the back catalogue. Some stuff off while you still can. And uh, one new song called Grayson, which is uh, about Grayson Perry, which is on the
0: art, artist only. Absolutely. And you've got to put Grayson in, otherwise, you know, it just. Does. Yeah, well, Grayson's
1: kind of uh, just one of life's inspiring characters, and it's great to write a song that's about inspiration rather than, you know, picking on Diane. <laughs> no, I didn't <laughs> think i Diane really, I didn't think. I'm sure
0: she'd see the funny side of it, should she? Yeah, well, she's happy she's <clears throat> anyway. So look, what would you, I mean, if you, I mean, because you're, you're such a sort of different career path on, on the music front, I mean, if you were to, able to say something to an 18-year-old self, I just wondered what that would be.
1: Um, well, I, I, I'd say, you know, uh, I'd say, I'd remind him that it's actually about hard work and connections and, a lot of the work isn't isn't about just writing the songs or being able to do it. You've got to try and connect. I mean, I think it's a little easier to to start off in terms of connections now for younger bands. The problem is there's just so many of them, and uh, it's how you stand out. I mean, I still don't know how how to stand out. Really, I mean, I haven't I haven't stood out. Uh, I still don't sell masses of records or. You know, I probably don't tweet enough, or I don't do enough posts, or yes. it's a million things you meant meant to do now. I mean, the producer that I'm working with at the moment, uh, a guy called uh, <clears throat> um, Matt, he, you know, he's just about to start working with uh, the. Uh, I think she's come second. She may even have won the German version of The Voice. It's not his kind of thing at all, but, I mean, he likes a bit of pop stuff, but she's got uh, 500,000 followers on wow. Instagram. And, uh, you know, like we were saying, well, she's in is isn't she? You need to work with someone like that, because when... It's, a, it's all... That has it's, it's, it's just taken over, really. The influencer. There was band recently that came over from America on the strength of False Hype. It was a something I was reading about. Uh, and they booked a load of gigs over here. This was <clears throat> probably, uh, maybe a year ago. And, uh, yeah, they came to do all the gigs and nobody turned up because they got booked simply because they'd got rich parents who bought YouTube likes and Facebook likes. And so all their social media looked astronomical. Yes. With all fake So... That's that's the other thing with that world, you know, I'm getting emails all the time, you know, you increase your sound, 100,000 SoundCloud followers for, uh, you know, $39 on offer this week. You fancy that? I mean, it's, people are doing it because they need to create that kind of digital, it's about the PR being more important than the actual product.
0: Yes. Well I kind of real, I can realise and this is not a good thing about looking back and feeling like it was better, but you had these influencers, you know, you had the you know, John Peel gatekeepers, not influencers, sorry. Yes. Influencers yes. of the of the kind of the Instagram crowd and, and the fire festival and all that kind of stuff. No, you had the gatekeepers. So you had John Peel, you got play, you got all these kind of nerdy people like me going, Oh you're recording on their TVKD D ninety cassette and you know, that would give them that kind of audience and the ability to get booked at Norwich Arts Centre or Leeds or, you know, Leicester, you know, you would just be able to get 100, 200 people come and see that band because John Peel played them or they had a session, that first album. And then the NME was kind of also, you know, you have four weekly papers as well. So, you know, that all helped create something, but it was kind of, at least it was real rather than fantasy yeah I mean
1: that actually happened. you
0: know the John Peel thing that was music
1: played and reactions and connections, but uh, it's like the middleman's been bypassed in the new work process or can be by manu- you know manufactured
0: numbers yes, which is always very strange, but anyway, look, this has been fantastic be like uh, you, know, you don't want to sound like uh, too cynical no, but it's oh, kind of and- I suppose, you know, it's kind of like, well, better things are better in the sense that people can get the music out there. But then, as you said, it's such a big diluted ocean now that it's like, how do you get seen? But then you've got a CV, which is very impressive. So then at least you've got that, which I think most people I speak to wonder how young kids would even make any money. Whereas in the old days, they would at least cover their costs and not make any money. (laughs) True. Did you manage to navigate the world of publishing, by the way, and ownership?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, I just... Um, most of the, my PRS submissions are mostly just... Uh, because mostly I'm just writing the songs and demoing them here, so I don't, I don't have a massive shared publishing history. Apart from yeah. if I've made records with people and I've, I've paid them in split PRS. People tend not to do that. It's quite so much with me nowadays because they're not convinced we're going to get it back. But every now and again, it every now and again it goes well, you know. And, uh, and um, yeah, I have a music collections uh, company that collects worldwide for me, and they, they find you know um, one of my songs has been played in Mexico Mexico, which always which fascinated me. I have no idea why. or Australia
0: yes absolutely but, um, you is, know, there, is, is there a particular period or album that gets played more than others um well funnily
1: enough the the, the growing up with any peculiar album seems 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 to be, still be played uh, some of the others fall more by the way so, um, the the, the uh, down the bright stream english village it's been played a few times, but that's because it's about. It's, it's called English Village and it crops up on TV. Yes. Uh, once in a while, well I say it crops up, I think it's been played twice. <laughs> I'm not, not really in the, uh, you know, uh, if there are any publishers listening, uh, don't panic, I'm not going to steal anybody's slots. <laughs> um, but you're welcome, welcome to get into touch if you want absolutely you want great songs to place in, uh, in massive
0: films yes. this is it you, got... everyone wants that Nick Lowe moment don't they with uh, <clears throat> what's so funny about peace love and understanding sure that That's got built yes put on the bodyguard soundtrack you know suddenly that was the pension plan sort of yeah
1: exactly yeah I think people you know, uh, I think that's one of the joys of music in some ways is that you to never quite know what people are going to want at any given time. Sometimes you can move things forward in, in the least expected ways. Yeah. As, as far as that kind of random reinforcement thing that, uh, that keeps people going sometimes. Because a lot of it is tedium and disappointment as well as uh, excitement and possibility and they're yeah. quite a long way apart sometimes and that's why musicians are a little high and low you know mood wise it's very easy to to, um, to start believing in something that's not going to happen and not believing in
0: something that somehow does happen yes and it's also as, as we obviously say just lastly I mean it is kind of odd in the sense that people like you know Bowie matured and was so brilliant Right like through to the end, and then poor old Morrison seemed to go from being like, Wow, this is an amazing character for this. Why How did that happen? You know, that, that, do, yeah. do, do people like Andy and Mike kind of think, Yeah, that was a bit strange, or do they just never speak about it? Uh, well, I haven't seen Andy for a long time. He's gone,
1: he was, Andy's in New York now. I don't really speak to Andy that much. Speak to Mike. Uh... Didn't really talk a lot about Morrissey or anything, to be fair. No. Probably a difficult subject. I think Mike I'm not sure whether Mike read the book. I read the Morrissey book. And uh yeah, we had a you know, I mean, if you've read it, you'll you'll know there's a chapter I think that Mike gets. It's just not the most flattering chapter in the world. But I I don't think he's let it bother him too much. He's,
0: no, well, no, we I have, don't.
1: I'm... I haven't dissected it with
0: him. No, I don't think, I don't think it's best Um, to, don't give it to him as a present. No, no. (laughs) I did read it, it made me laugh, but it was just like, you know, quite extreme in in its I
1: think one of the most extreme elements is his demand to be a Penguin classic before it had been released. Says something about his ego.
0: Yes. Demanded
1: that it was a Penguin classic, else he was going to go to a different publisher. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, I mean, sort of, so, uh, it's rather, rather, rather assuming. I mean,
0: yeah, well, I suppose, 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 suppose what, was quite, I just, what was quite interesting, that everything from school right through, all these incidences, just like everything worked against him in every situation. There was never once that he felt like, oh, yeah, that went yeah. well, you know. From that, I always
1: remember their album, we're at number two. I blame Jeff. I blame Jeff. He didn't do this. We're only at number two. <laughs> the whole world is thinking number two is pretty good, isn't it? And he's <laughs> basically uh, having a go at Jeff Travis for being number two.
0: Yeah, Jeff gets it a lot. It's time. a little
1: bit uh, harsh, really. I mean, I think they, Jeff must have done something right. I think most people think. Yeah. Anyway.
0: He's been through a lot. But look, this has been fantastic. So look, when I put it out, can I, um, I can send you a link and then you can put it on your social media platforms. Yeah, site. no, please do, yeah. yeah. And that will be great. But look, best of luck for the next year and hopefully... Well,
1: it's been here. a very pleasant chat. It feels like we're kind of old mates. <laughs> I, I know I'm a bit older than you, but I, I get the Smiths, the whole Smiths thing.
0: And, uh, yes, well, I, I, you know, it was kind of interesting because that 83 to 87, that I felt was like... A kind of a golden period which i really i got and i loved it i didn't really get the next bit so much but it kind of built up from punk post-punk that orange juice um you know i suppose it was orange juice wasn't it that a lot of people were very influenced by and then suddenly the smiths oh, appeared because oh, you know.
1: i did some
0: nice gigs with that not long before we got no. yeah and it was just good you know and um you know, we've just kind of been lucky that we've had... I love your here.
1: analysis about my uh, career in reverse.
0: Yes. So i to look forward to
1: it. So made me feel even more positive. Than
0: well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, you must see all these other bands, you know, like the other day there was Davey Woodward from the Brilliant Corners who's just got an album out. And, you know, everyone seems to have now got a new album out, which is great. You know, I think everyone's gone and done their career. And it's just, you know, it's just brilliant that people are still feeling... Yeah because music
1: never really goes away you know it's like once you've kind of thought well i think i can do this i I, you don't realize that it then becomes an intrinsic need and you end up doing it yes Uh, because almost because you you kind of have to
0: i know well it's in yeah with a lot of those indie bands it's like but you've done nothing since then but it's like oh yeah but i play music all the time but i just i'm just not going to put it out because i've got a day job and it's you know but i do love playing you know you're thinking okay and so some date people, you know, I was really surprised. I did an interview with a, with a drummer from the Sundays, and he did sort of say, well, we have occasionally got together quite recently and recorded a few bits. It's like, my God, okay. And it's like, well, that might be it, because the main characters kind of don't want to do it again kind of thing. It's like, we're the Sundays, we're back. And it's like, they're thinking, no, I'm quite happy with my life now. We've kind of got a nice scene. Yeah, I've not, never got to that stage. My, um, I, I,
1: I've always wanted to... Yeah, I don't think I've had enough disappointment yet, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, no. maybe disappointment is something that I'm so used to. It hasn't destroyed me.
0: <laughs> do you well, know I what
1: think, I mean? I, don't, I, I still feel optimistic when I'm... I mean, I still feel... Sometimes, you know, when I finish a record, I think... Am I ever going to be able to do this again? I really need to start promoting this. And then, as the life of the record takes off... You know, I get a little bit of interest, get some reviews. And then and then I, I hit this other, next period and think, well, I, you know, uh, is it worth it? But it always is. Yeah. Which is yeah.
0: strange. It is strange. But yeah. you can, so anyway, I'm now. Yeah, you. anyway, look, Tim's on the phone. Indeed, Tim is on the phone. Right, anyway, I thought I'd leave that in because um, Tim... Kept interrupting halfway through that interview, or most of it, really. Anyway, Tim, never mind. That, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much to Vinnie Peculiar. Forgive me the time for that chat. Anyway, there you go. Everything you ever need to know about Vinnie is all there. Make notes. Right, this has been David Eastall, probably said that. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, C86 Show. Check it out. Um, Well, make it nice, anyway. And also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.